Chapter Twenty One of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Twenty One. Some Traits of Life. It was the night Lady Glencore received, and, as usual, the street was crowded with equipage, which somehow seemed to have got into inextricable confusion, some endeavouring to turn back while others pressed forward, the court of the palace being closely packed with carriages which the thronged street held in fast blockade. As the apartments which faced the street were not ever used for these receptions, the dark unlighted windows suggested no remark but they who had entered the courtyard were struck by the gloomy aspect of the vast building. Not only that the entrance and the stairs were in darkness, but the whole suite of rooms, usually brilliant as the day, were now in deep gloom. From every carriage window heads were protruded, wondering at this strange spectacle, and eager inquiries passed on every side for an explanation. The explanation of sudden illness was rapidly disseminated, but as rapidly contradicted, and the reply given by the porter to all demands quickly repeated from mouth to mouth, her ladyship will not receive. "'Can no one explain this mystery?' cried the old Princess Borinsky, as, heavy with fat and diamonds, she hung out of her carriage window. "'Oh, there's Major Scaresby. He's certain to know, if it be anything malicious.' Scaresby was, however, too busy in recounting his news to others to perceive the signals the old princess held out, and it was only as her chasseur, six feet three of green and gold, bent down to give her highness message that the major hurried off in all the importance of a momentary scandal to the side of her carriage. "'Here I am, all impatience. What is it, Scaresby? Tell me quickly,' said she. "'A smash, my dear princess. Nothing more or less.' said he, in a voice which nature seemed to have invented to utter impertinences, so harsh and grating, yet so painfully distinct in all its accents, as complete a smash as ever I heard of. You can't mean that her fortune is in peril. I suppose that must suffer also. It is her character, her station as one of us, that shipwrecked here. Go on, go on, cried she impatiently. I wish to hear it all. "'All is very briefly related, then,' said he. "'The charming countess, you remember, ran away with a countryman of mine, young Glencore of the Eighth Hussars. I used to know his father intimately.' "'Never mind his father.' "'That's exactly what Glencore did. He came over here and fell in love with the girl, and they ran off together. But they forgot to get married, princess! Ha, 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 ha!' And he laughed with a cackle a demon could not have rivalled. "'I don't believe a word of it. I'll never believe it,' cried the princess. "'That's exactly what I was recommending to the Marquesa Guestini. I said you needn't believe it. Why, how do we go anywhere nowadays except by not believing the evil stories that are told of our entertainers?' "'Yes, yes, but I repeat that this is an infamous calumny. She a countess of a family second to none in all Italy, her father a grand Espagne. I'll go to her this moment.' "'She'll not see you. She has just refused to see La Genori,' said the Major tartly, though, if a cracked reputation might have afforded any sympathy, she might have admitted her. "'What is to be done?' 
exclaimed the princess sorrowfully. Just what you suggested a few moments ago. Don't believe it. Hang me, but good houses and good cooks are growing too scarce to make one credulous of the ills that can be said of their owners. I wish I knew what course to take, muttered the princess. I'll tell you, then. Get a half-dozen of your own set together to-morrow morning, vote the whole scandal an atrocious falsehood, and go in a body and tell the countess your mind. You know as well as I, princess, that social credit is as great a bubble as commercial. We should all of us be bankrupts if our books were seen. Ah, by Jove, and the similitude goes farther, too, for when one old established house breaks there is generally a crash in the whole community around it. While thus they talked, a knot had gathered around the carriage, all eager to hear what opinion the princess had formed on the catastrophe. Various were the sentiments expressed by the different speakers, some sorrowfully deploring the disaster, others more eagerly inveighing against the infamy of the man who had proclaimed it. Many declared that they had come to the determination to discredit the story. Not one, however, sincerely professed that he disbelieved it. Can it be, as the French moralist asserts, that we have a latent sense of satisfaction in the misfortunes of even our best friends? Or is it, as we rather suspect, that true friendship is a rarer thing than is commonly believed, and has little to do with those conventional intimacies which so often bear its name? Assuredly, of all this well-bred, well-dressed, and well-born company now thronging the courtyard of the palace and the street in front of it, the tone was as much sarcasm as sorrow, and many a witty epigram and smart speech were launched over a disaster which might have been spared such levity. At length the space slowly began to thin, slowly carriage after carriage drove off, the heaviest grief of their occupants often being over a lost soirée, an unprofited occasion to display toilette and jewels, while a few more reflective discussed what course was to be followed in future, and what recognition extended to the victim. The next day Florence sat in committee over the lost countess. Witnesses were heard, and evidence taken as to her case. They all agreed it was a great hardship, a terrible calamity. But still, if true, what could be done? Never was there a society less ungenerously prudish, and yet there were cases, this one of them, which transgressed all conventional rule. Like a crime which no statute had ever contemplated, it stood out self-accused and self-condemned. A few might, perhaps, have been merciful, but they were overborne by numbers. Lady Glencore's beauty and her vast fortune were now counts in the indictment against her, and many a jealous rival was not sorry at this hour of humiliation. The despotism of beauty is not a very mild sway, after all, and perhaps the countess had exercised her rule right royally, at all events, it was the young and the good-looking who voted her exclusion, and only those who could not enter into competition with her charms who took the charitable side. They discussed and debated the question all day, but while they hesitated over the reprieve, the prisoner was beyond the law. The gate of the palace, locked and barred all day, refused entrance to every one. At night it opened to admit the exit of a travelling carriage. The next morning large bills of sale posted over the walls declared that all the furniture and decorations were to be sold. The countess had left Florence. No one knew whither. "'I must really have those large Sèvres jars,' said one. "'And I the small park phaeton,' cried another. "'I hope she has not taken Horace with her. He was the best cook in Italy. Splendid hawk she had. 
I wonder is there much of it left. I wish we were certain of another bad reputation to replace her, grunted out Scaresby. They are the only kind of people who give good dinners and never ask for returns. And thus these dear friends, guests of a hundred brilliant fete, discussed the fall of her they had once worshipped. It may seem small-minded and narrow to stigmatize such conduct as this. Some may say that for the ordinary courtesies of society no pledges of friendship are required, no real gratitude incurred. Be it so. Still the revulsion from habits of deference and respect to disparagement and even sarcasm is a sorry evidence of human kindness, and the threshold over which for years we had only passed as guests might well suggest sadder thoughts as we tread it to behold desolation. The fair countess had been the celebrity of that city for many a day. The stranger of distinction sought her, as much as a matter of course as he sought presentation to the sovereign. Her salon had the double eminence of brilliancy in rank and brilliancy in wit. Her entertainments were cited as models of elegance and refinement, and now she was gone. The extreme of regret that followed her was the sorrow of those who were to dine there no more, the grief of him who thought he should never have a house like it. The respectable vagabonds of society are a large family, much larger than is usually supposed. They are often well-born, almost always well-mannered, invariably well-dressed. They do not, at first blush, appear to discharge any very great or necessary function in life but we must by no means from that infer their inutility. Naturalists tell us that several varieties of insect existence we rashly set down as mere annoyances have their peculiar spheres of usefulness and good, and doubtless these same loungers contribute in some mysterious manner to the welfare of that state which they only seem to burden. We are told that, but for flies, for instance, we should be infested with myriads of winged tormentors insinuating themselves into our meat and drink and rendering life miserable. Is there not something very similar performed by the respectable class I allude to? Are they not invariably devouring and destroying some vermin a little smaller than themselves, and making thus a healthier atmosphere for their betters? If good society only knew the debt it owes to these defenders of its privileges, a vagabond's home and aged asylum would speedily figure amongst our national charities. We have been led to these thoughts by observing how distinctly different was Major Scaresby's tone in talking of the Countess while he addressed his betters or spoke to his own class. To the former he gave vent to all his sarcasm and bitterness. They liked it just because they wouldn't condescend to it themselves. To his own he put on the bullying air of one who said, how should you possibly know what vices such great people have any more than you know what they have for dinner? I live amongst them. I understand them. I am aware that what would be very shocking in you is quite permissible to them. They know how to be wicked. You only know how to be gross. And thus Scaresby talked and sneered and scoffed, making such a hash of good and evil, such a maelstrom of right and wrong, that it were a subtle moralist who could have extracted one solitary scrap of uncontaminated meaning from all his muddy lucubrations. He, however, effected this much. He kept the memory of her who had gone alive by daily calumnies. He embalmed her in poisons, each morning appearing with some new trait of her extravagance, till the world, grown sick of him and his theme, vowed they would hear no more of either, and so she was forgotten. I, good reader, 
utterly forgotten. The gay world, for so it likes to be called, has no greater element of enjoyment amongst all its high gifts than its precious power of forgetting. It forgets not only all it owes to others—gratitude, honour, and esteem—but even the closer obligations it has contracted with itself. The Palazzo della Torre was for a fortnight the resort of the curious and the idle. At the sale crowds appeared to secure some object of especial value to each, and then the gates were locked, the shutters closed, and the large ill-written notice on the door announced that any letters for the proprietor were to be addressed to Pietro Arettini, Via del Sole. End of chapter 21